0: I am mildly intrigued by the Creation Museum in Petersburg, Kentucky. Not quite fascinated enough to personally make a pilgrimage there, but interested enough to have virtually peeked at it. The museum opened in 2007. The generosity of private donors underwrote the entire $27 million needed to construct the behemoth. The museum openly pushes the view that the biblical story of Genesis is grounded in scientific fact, meaning that the earth was created in six days, with God creating the light on the first day, the sky on the second, reserving the third day for dry land, seas, and all plants. The sun, moon, and stars were created on the fourth day, while creatures of the sky and seas were created on the fifth day. The sixth day is the one that is the most interesting for us, as it was on this day that all land animals were created. That includes humans, which were imbued with the likeness of God. Fundamentalist Christians believe that every single word of the Bible ought to be interpreted literally. The vast majority of the Creation Museum's visitors are likely individuals who already believe in the perspective that the Bible is unquestionable truth, or truth with a capital T. Those who fork over $50 for a ticket are introduced to the fundamentalist version of biblical history, namely that life on earth began a mere 6,000 years ago, rather than the 3.8 billion years that scientists believe. Of course, those scientists have some solid backing for their reasoning. Namely, that the world's oldest fossils can be dated back to 3.5 billion years ago. Of course, truly dedicated fundamentalists have an answer for these supposed scientific outliers. Oftentimes claiming that the devil placed the ancient artifacts in order to lure the faithful away from God. Carl Everett, a pretty good baseball player and a key piece on the Chicago White Sox 2005 championship team, summed up the creationist perspective when asked about it during his team's run to the World Series, stating for the world to hear in an interview that, quote, the Bible never says anything about dinosaurs. You can't say there were dinosaurs when you never saw them, Everett eloquently continues. Someone actually saw Adam and Eve eating apples. No one ever saw Tyrannosaurus Rex. As you might have already figured out, there are some holes within the man's logic. For instance, if someone saw Adam and Eve as he claims, then we have a long-lost biblical character missing from the Garden of Eden, another portion of Genesis' story. Perhaps this is the Steve that we have heard so much about from biblical believers who refuse to accept the concept of gay marriage. Fundamentalism is comforting for so many because it simplifies the complex down to just follow what the book says. One would assume that all fundamentalists therefore are indistinguishable from each other. But even the Creation Museum distanced itself from Everett's hot take, putting exhibits up on display to show how humans and velociraptors once lived peacefully together in coexistence. That exhibit is necessary because Genesis makes the claim that humans were created on the same exact 24-hour day as all other land animals. Thus, if you believe that dinosaurs existed and that Genesis is literal truth, then you are forced to believe that before dogs unfairly usurped them, that velociraptors may have been man's best friend. Science and religion often conflict with each other. In this particular instance, Earth's scientists appear to be waging a genocidal war with the interpretation displayed by the Creation Museum. The National Center for Science Education has had thousands of scientists put their name to paper on a statement which labels the museum as scientifically inaccurate, and expresses the concern that students who accept the material as scientifically valid are unlikely to succeed in science courses at the collegiate level. These students, they note, will need remedial instruction in the nature of science as well as in the specific areas of science misrepresented by answers in Genesis. Another group, the Campaign to Defend the Constitution, goes further, referring to the museum as part of a nefarious campaign which seeks to institutionalize a lie. To most, creationism has no place within a science curriculum, because of the simple fact that it's not science. the vast majority of Christian fundamentalists are completely harmless to others. Their mere belief that human history and evolution were massively sped up doesn't pose a threat. However, when some suggest that parts of it were skipped over completely, social studies teachers have to deduct points. Someone believing that dinosaurs lived among humans or that their bones were hidden for us to be found by the devil will always look silly at a sophisticated dinner party, but no true harm will come from their stance. Unfortunately, that isn't true for all Christian fundamentalists. The group Reasoned Spirituality defines the concept of fundamentalism as a belief in the infallibility and literal interpretation of a particular religion's doctrine or holy books. When applied in Abrahamic sects, they write, It can lead to extreme prejudice and violence due to the nature of the Bible. The Crusades, the Inquisition, and witch burning were due to fundamentalist ideals. Someone who claims to have the capital T version of the truth can cloak themselves in righteousness. It becomes difficult to pierce these people's mindset because of the fact that many of these individuals will also defend the Holy Book by utilizing the logical fallacy of circular reasoning, which creates an endless chain of faulty rhetoric to shield debate which sounds like this. I know that the Bible is the truth, because the Bible tells me it is. Thankfully, there is more than one way to read the Bible. The Counterpoint series on Bible and theology points us towards Galileo, who claimed, against contemporary Catholic doctrine, that the earth revolved around the sun. His stature as an elite Italian astronomer led to the church encouraging him to renounce his espousing of heliocentrism. Galileo engaged the church in a debate, before ultimately renouncing his viewpoint, only to later publish a retraction that was revealed after his death at the age of 77, The church's central piece of evidence during the trial was a fundamentalist reading of Chronicles 1630, which posits that the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. In their mind, this meant that the planet's position was fixed. But Galileo retorted that the Bible often means things which are quite different from what its bare words signify. He explained further, stating, Hence, in expounding the Bible, if one were always to confine oneself to the unadorned grammatical meaning, one might fall into error. Thus, it would be necessary to assign to God feet, hands, and eyes, as well as corporal and human affections, such as anger, repentance, hatred, and sometimes even the forgetting of things past and ignorance of those to come. These propositions uttered by the Holy Ghost were set down in that manner by the sacred scribes in order to accommodate them to the capacities of the common people, who are rude and unlearned. Galileo thought that these passages should be interpreted not according to their strict grammatical meaning, but according to a different set of rules, one that take into account the complexities of communication, such as metaphor, symbolism, and imagery, rules that operate at a level higher than the sentence, a sort of macro-syntax. His examiners, however, unanimously disagreed, and in 1633 threatened him with torture, banned the sale of his books, and placed him under house arrest for the balance of his life. It took 350 years for the church to finally admit that Galileo had in fact been right all along, at least about the position of the earth relative to the sun. I ought to note that the Catholic Church moves quite slowly. Why did it take so long to accept an expert's scientific findings? Why do so many people travel to the Creation Museum, even though science knows without a shadow of doubt that dinosaurs and humans never interacted. Why do we still look to the Bible for the answers to some of humanity's most pressing issues? I would posit that Lewis Carroll was on the path to an answer when he wrote the famous line from Alice's Adventures Through the Looking Glass of, No, no, the adventures first. Explanations take such a dreadful time. The fact of the matter is that science has the answers to a number of pressing questions that were previously only answered by religious doctrines. Thankfully, the vast majority of Christians in the world, including myself, believe that science and religion can mix. Through a metaphorical interpretation of the Bible, one can intertwine scientific evolution and religious creationism together. But to do so, we have to understand the scientific evidence for the evolution of man, his banning together to form civilization, and his subsequent exploration of the world. That journey is one that I am eager to begin. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the world's first explorers, early mankind. Episode number one, The Genesis of Mankind. historian Yuval Noah Harari reveals to us that just six million years ago, a single female ape had two daughters. One became the ancestor of all chimpanzees. The other is our own grandmother. The biblical story of creation of Adam and Eve is relatively easy to comprehend. God created man out of clay, and due to man's original curse of boredom, created woman out of one of Adam's ribs. The nature of a singular set of relatives for all of humanity is one of the few things that science and Christianity agree upon. Yet there is no suitable explanation for the differing methods regarding the creation of two creatures that clearly belong to the same biological family, genus and species. We know this because men and women, no matter what race, nationality, or ethnicity, are able to produce children together. This is simple biology. You might have witnessed an untamed puppy and your house cat seemingly falling madly in love, only to then get it on like Marvin Gaye is playing in the background when you aren't looking. Hopefully, you are totally normal and would immediately stop such an act immediately but what happens if you don't manage to stop it in time? Thankfully, nothing. Megan, whom I assume is on the same level of fame as other one-named individuals such as Prince, writes for the prestigious website known only as Tuxedo Cat. She explains to us that dogs and cats can't breed together because they only share four out of the seven levels of the classification system differing in family, genus, and species. To produce a child, the creature in question needs to be of the same family and genus. Animals that are closer can produce children, but those children are born infertile, unable to reproduce with anyone, even with a member of their own species. Mules fall into this category. They are the product of a horse and a donkey making a series of adult choices. Despite centuries of scientific breakthroughs, that combination of animals remains the only way to successfully reproduce a mule. Ligers, a lion and tiger, the donks, zebra and donkeys, and the beefalo, bison and cow, all fall into the same category as hybrid species. The fact that all humans can produce fertile children strongly suggests that we are all the same which in turn necessitates a common ancestor. The biblical Garden of Eden is described as a paradise full of drinkable water, animals, and trees, of which one happened to be an apple tree. Genesis also notes that Adam and Eve were stark naked, another fact upon which historians and theologians can agree upon as clothing is an invention, one which the first man and woman would have known nothing of. So where geographically would the historical Garden of Eden have been? Continental drift has shifted the location of Earth's continents, but Pangea broke up well before humans evolved, like hundreds of millions of years before the first upright version of our cousins. New scientific breakthroughs continue to push back the evolution of man from ape, with most settling now in the 300,000 to 200,000 years ago range. That is far greater than the Creation Museum's 6,000 years of human history. It is easy to gloss over numbers that seem so distant, but it's really important to our story to understand that the continents have hardly moved since humans moved to an upright standing position. Dinosaurs were wiped out around 65 million years ago. That means that there were roughly 64,700,000 years between the extinction of the dinosaurs and the emergence of anyone resembling Adam and Eve. When you think about the Earth in those terms, it becomes easier to understand that 500,000 years is a mere blip in time for the process of continental drift. Likewise, none of us will get a front row ticket to see the continents get the band back together, as the best guess of scientists has Pangea, the supercontinent, reforming in another 200 to 250 million years from now. Recognizing that the continents are at roughly the same longitude and latitude, one can begin to hypothesize about the location of the real-life Garden of Eden, a land where man could frolic naked among a plethora of easy-to-access food. Geographically, there are three possible locations, the Amazon, Indonesia, and the Congo. Each falls along the same line of longitude, which results in lush rainforests and a year-round temperate climate. Each rainforest would provide ample amounts of flowing water, trees for shade and fruit, as well as animals which could be hunted by someone who remained at this point relatively unsophisticated. Scientifically, we have found very little that dates near the approximate time period for humanity's origins in the Amazon we have found evidence of farming and irrigation, as well as a 45,000-year-old cave painting of a wild pig among the rainforests of the Indonesian islands. But the oldest evidence of all points to Central Africa and the Congolese rainforest as humanity's Garden of Eden. Professor Harari walks us through the next part of our story, informing us that humans first evolved in East Africa about 2.5 million years ago from an earlier genus of apes referred to as Southern apes. About 2 million years ago, some of these men and women left their homeland to journey through and settle vast areas of North Africa, Europe, and Asia. Since survival in the snowy forests of northern Europe required different traits than those needed to stay alive in Indonesia's steaming jungles, human populations evolved in different directions. The result was several distinct species, to each of which scientists have assigned a pompous Latin name. Humans in Europe and Western Asia are believed to have evolved into Neanderthals, who tended to be bulkier and more muscular in order to survive the colder climate of a Western Eurasia that was at the time hopelessly locked into an ice age. East Asia was populated by Homo erectus, which despite little attention from the educational community, survived for close to a million years, making it the most durable human species ever. Indonesia was populated by another lesser-known humanoid species, known to the scientific community as Homo Solonis, or man from the Solo Valley. Harari informs us that on another Indonesian island, the small island of Flores, archaic humans underwent a process of dwarfing. Humans first reached the island, the historian writes, when the sea level was exceptionally low and the island was easily accessible from the mainland. When the seas rose again, some people were trapped on the island, which was poor in resources. Big people, who need a lot of food, died first. Smaller fellows survived much better. Over the generations, the people of Flores became dwarves. This unique species reached a maximum height of only 3.5 feet and weighed no more than 55 pounds. Thus, our evolution wasn't in a straight line that went from ape to Homo erectus to Neanderthal and then to Homo sapiens. That illustration, which appears in every single history textbook, is placed there for simplicity's sake, rather than for the purpose of understanding. Three biologists co-wrote an article for The Conversation, which tackles the issue, revealing that the single-line diagram that purports to show the evolution of man from ape is a holdover from the days before Charles Darwin. Pre-Darwin scholars such as Plato and Aristotle believed that the world was organized through a progression to perfection. In other words, the ancient Greeks believed that things progress from primitive to modern. Rather than an easy-to-understand straight line, Darwin preferred the image of a tree, the branching of which was a metaphor for the way species originate, by splitting. His interpretation means that humans might share a common ancestor with a starfish, having splintered numerous times over the course of more than 580 million years. The key to his belief is that evolution is continuous, something that modern-day scientists are documenting in real time, pointing to recent adaptations that have allowed humans to thrive at high altitudes, evolution of genetic traits that protect against malaria, as well as our increasingly common ability to consume lactose as adults. Something that the organization Understanding Evolution notes is only possible for 90% of Americans, 50% of Spanish and French people, and 1% of the Chinese. Contradicting his Greek predecessors, Darwin believes that there is no such thing as attainable perfection. Humans have supercharged evolution and ridden it straight to the top of the food chain. Lions and sharks, other top-of-the-pyramid creatures, slowly evolved to that position through millions of years. But Homo sapiens rocketed to the top of the hierarchy in just the last 100,000 years. Harari tells us that the slow emergence of the other predators was so gradual that ecosystems were able to develop checks and balances that prevent lions and sharks from wrecking too much havoc. He points out that as lions became deadlier, gazelles evolved to run faster. The pace at which humans evolved, however, threw the natural system out of whack, resulting in our near-godlike ability to alter every single aspect of biological life on our planet. Fire was essential to our progress, so much so that ancient Greek mythology, their society's own book of Genesis, discusses in great detail how man, via Prometheus, stole fire from the gods. Control of fire allowed us to harvest new foods— enabling us to cook away germs and parasites. Chimpanzees spend five hours a day chewing raw food, but a quick cook over the flame allows us to shift our attention onto another task, moving us beyond a simplistic hunting and gathering society whose sole purpose seems to be to feed themselves. The control of fire allowed humans to evolve shorter intestines, which limited energy consumption that thus allowed our brains, notorious high-energy users, to grow larger. In short, fire opened the first significant gulf between man and the other animals. It also gave us the first weapon of mass destruction, as anyone with a fire stick suddenly possessed the ability to burn down an entire forest in a matter of hours. (laughs) Early man's dominance over the environment set off a mass exodus. Prey soon traveled outside of their environmental zone, and the predators subsequently followed. Here we have the introduction of the first of two scientific theories. Historians and biologists use the term theory because we can't scientifically prove it. Note that most scientists won't use the term evolutionary theory because for them, evolution is settled fact. The geniuses behind the Creation Museum, however, regularly label evolution as just a theory, one which can't be directly observed. We'll accept the evidence regarding evolution, but point out that these next two ideas do in fact remain merely theoretical. The two concepts are in conflict, meaning that we don't know which one is accurate but modern-day biologists are leaning towards what is known as the Replacement Theory. This side of the evolutionary coin suggests that Homo sapiens, us, were incompatible with the other versions of early humans. This could have been because our body odors were different, or because Neanderthals were capable of eating apples by holding them between their toes. Either action can easily ruin a first date. Whichever option it was, the species or genus didn't mix, and therefore all living humans have roughly the same genetic baggage and racial distinctions among us are negligible. The other theory is known as the interbreeding or genetic drift theory. This belief suggests that we overcame the fact that Neanderthals lacked both a forehead and a chin and proceeded to swipe right each other's early prehistoric version of tinder. Harari points out that if this is the case, then today's Eurasians are not pure sapiens. They are a mixture of sapiens and Neanderthals. Similarly, when sapiens reached East Asia, they interbred with the local Homo erectus. So the Chinese and Koreans are a mixture of sapiens and erectus the mixture of which would have produced the differences that are readily visible to us today. Recently, the replacement theory has gathered steam among academics and is the more commonly believed of the two theories. If that is the case, however, what explains our visible differences? The adaptation theory comes to the fore for that question pointing out that over thousands of years, humans have positively evolved to adapt to their environment. Although theoretical, there is a ton of supporting evidence for the adaptation theory, my favorite of which involves melanin, which determines the pigmentation of our skin. The more melanin one has, the darker their skin complexion is. Thus, the absence of melanin means that a person is an albino, a fact that can happen among all of Earth's races. Darker skin color has a significant advantage in ensuring that cancer-causing UV radiation doesn't penetrate to our vital organs. Professor Dennis O'Neill tells us that melanin acts as a protective biological shield against ultraviolet radiation. By doing this, it helps to prevent sunburn damage that could result in DNA change and subsequently several kinds of malignant skin cancers. Melanoma in particular is a serious threat to life. In the U.S., approximately 54,000 people get this aggressive type of skin cancer every year, and nearly 8,000 of them die from it. Those at highest risk are European Americans. They have a 10 times higher risk than African Americans who have far higher rates of protective melanin. Essentially, melanin protects against skin cancer, which is most prevalent at the tropics. However, there is nothing in this world that is pure good or likewise pure evil. As such, UV radiation in small doses helps to convert the meat in our diet into helpful vitamins. For those with enough UV-blocking melanin, the result is often a vitamin D deficiency a nutrient that helps our body maintain healthy bones and supports our immune functions. After explaining the benefits and disadvantages of melanin, adaptation theorists will pull down a map of the world. They will point out that the individuals with the greatest amount of melanin in the world are those from the Congolese rainforest. Then they'll point to northern Africa, where individual skin tones are lighter. Then northward to Italy, where they are still lighter. Then to Poland and Germany, where again our natural skin tones become lighter. Before finally finishing in the Scandinavian nations to identify the people with the least melanin within their bodies. The takeaway is that as migration occurred over multiple generations, Our bodies figured out that melanin wasn't needed in the northern latitudes, and thus we began to shed it from our bodies. This example isn't the only evidence supporting the theory. Mongolians eat the most meat in the world, but suffer the least amount of heart attacks. Even the Asian eyelid, which blinks faster than a Caucasian eye, can be explained by having adapted to the conditions within the notoriously dusty, Honghe River Valley. The suggestion is that the differing races of humans are not due to some sort of intelligent design by a god who likes to use all of his paints, but instead due to natural selection related to our continuous evolution. Evidence like this is fairly easy to visually grasp and thus has achieved the majority of support within the scientific community. A piece of recent evidence, however, has given believers of the interbreeding theory a second wind, as we have managed to recover enough Neanderthal DNA off of discovered bones to fully map out the Neanderthal genome. This discovery has resulted in a couple of major implications for the scientific community. First, it was revealed that between one to four percent of the unique human DNA of the modern populations of the Middle East and Europe is consistent with Neanderthal DNA. If this Neanderthal DNA was passed down through our biology, it means that Homo sapiens and Neanderthals were less horses and donkeys, and more like golden retrievers and pugs, two different breeds of the same species. This would let us off of a hook that some scientists refer to as humanity's original sin. The book of Genesis also has an original sin. In that version of events, a talking serpent convinced Eve to take a bite from the forbidden fruit. For a millennia, Eve's decision and mankind's subsequent expulsion from the Garden of Eden— has resulted in the spread of a pervasive form of patriarchy throughout Western culture. Roch Coleman, a professor of Old Testament and Hebrew scholars, points out that ultimately male authors and interpreters of the Bible crafted a narrative that implicated the woman as the culprit for the presence of sin within humankind. Thereafter, women have been suppressed by the male-dominated culture that has manifested itself throughout the biblical literature. That, of course, doesn't have to be the case. After all, the original story reads like this. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. The story expressly notes that Adam happens to be with Eve at the critical moment of the sin. He would have overheard the serpent's arguments. Nowhere does he encourage Eve to hesitate, nor does he put up a fight when she hands him the fruit. The two were together in the ultimate act that earned God's ire. Yet Eve and her female descendants tend to shoulder the entire weight of the biblical original sin. the historical original sin is a little more balanced. Keep in mind that the replacement theory suggests that Homo sapiens survived while the other early forms of man, such as the Neanderthals, faltered. We don't know the exact story, but the cruelest version of our cousin's extinction contains the world's first genocide, involving a war to the death between sapiens and Neanderthals. Less cruel are the notions that Homo sapiens survived the Ice Ages because we were smarter and therefore better at adaptation. But that shouldn't clear our conscience completely. After all, if a creature is going extinct, isn't it our obligation to help them out? What about if they already went extinct? Do we then have an obligation to bring them back? that is the second interesting element of having mapped out the DNA of Neanderthals. Namely, that gene editing is advancing at such a breakneck pace that it may soon be possible to genetically create a pure-bred Neanderthal baby. That child would have to gestate within a Homo sapien, and amazingly there are those that appear willing. Harvard geneticist George Church is among those incredibly excited about the opportunity, claiming that all that's needed would be an extremely adventurous female human to serve as a surrogate mother. That pioneering Harvard geneticist suggests that the day is coming when we'll want to reverse-engineer the Neanderthal genome and pass the now-extinct creature's genetic advantages to our own children. Naomi McAuffler of The Guardian had a little bit more fun with Church's idea by placing a fake want ad in her 2013 article, telling readers that if you're a young, single, and adventurous female human and wondering what to do with the womb you have just lying around inside you collecting dust, an exciting opportunity has arisen. You can bear a Neanderthal baby. This is a once-in-an-eon chance to have your very own bundle of fur. A little Ugg Junior with your eyes and smile, but the back hair of its great-great-great-great-great-etc. grandfather. Color me skeptical, but the 65-year-old, ironically named Church, believes that it could happen during his lifetime. What is happening, however, is the professor's Frankenstein efforts to bring back the extinct woolly mammoth by implanting its DNA into the unsuspecting womb of an African elephant. His private company, Colossal, has already received $15 million in privately financed dollars, perhaps allowing us to recreate in real life the Creation Museum's exhibitions showing modern-day humans hunting the beasts early man did indeed hunt the creatures, perhaps as far as 15,000 years ago. But that version of man would have been far more primitive than the ones cast in wax within the museum grounds. The ethical questions emerging from church's efforts are without clear answers. Is it right to bring back a species from the dead? Is it our obligation to do so, as we most likely were the reason for their extinction? What will the unintended consequences be for their re-release into an environment that has moved on? And have we not had enough Jurassic Park movies to know that this is a terrible idea? I for one hope that the replacement theory isn't the correct answer. Evolutionary interbreeding provides a good enough answer to explain the diverse cosmopolitan world that I want to live in. Despite recent genetic evidence, Harari remains skeptical that humans and Neanderthals mixed, pointing out that tolerance is not a sapien's trademark. In modern times, a small difference in skin color, dialect, or religion has been enough to prompt one group of sapiens to set about exterminating another group. Before asking the question, would ancient sapiens have been more tolerant towards an entirely different human species, the professor leaves us with one of the greatest what-ifs in history. What if the other versions of early man had survived with us? He writes that our lack of brothers and sisters makes it easier to imagine that we are the epitome of creation, and that a chasm separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. If Neanderthals and Homo erectus had both survived, would we sapiens have still written the words, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness? And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Another difference among all sapiens are our various languages. Every given day, there are more than 7,000 languages spoken on our planet. While it would be nice to unify mankind's language, each has a unique way of conveying a people's culture. Linguist Benjamin Worf points out that the many words that Inuits have for snowfall allows them to think about it differently than the Japanese, who lack a clear-cut word for the falling flakes of ice. This is where Harari's work truly shines, as he claims that the evolution of our language is what separated us from the other animals of the earth. He writes that the appearance of new ways of thinking and communicating between 70,000 and 30,000 years ago constitutes the cognitive revolution. What caused it? We're not sure. The most commonly believed theory argues that accidental genetic mutations change the inner wiring of the brains of sapiens, enabling them to think in unprecedented ways and to communicate using an altogether new type of language. The professor calls this the tree of knowledge mutation. The Bible also recognizes the need to explain the variance of man's languages. After all, if all originated from Adam and Eve, we would have all learned the same way to communicate. The story of the Tower of Babel, also found in Genesis, tells us that the Babylonian people were audacious enough to attempt to build a tower with its top in the heavens. Seeking to maintain his privacy in the clouds, God disrupted the work by confusing the language of the workers, making it impossible for them to finish the tower. Frustrated with what had befallen them, they were then dispersed across the planet. It is a simple explanation for our differences, meaning that it is consistent with the rest of the book of Genesis, a portion of the Bible that was originally credited to have come from Moses. But that has subsequently been thrown in doubt, as the chapter includes events that originated after his death. It also includes lines such as, Moses was a very humble man, which wouldn't be something that a humble man would write about himself. Unfortunately, digging through the past in order to figure out the truth of the matter isn't an easy job. Psychologist Jordan Peterson points out that people create their worlds with the tools they have directly at hand. Faulty tools produce faulty results. Repeated use of the same defective tools produces the same defective results. It is in this manner that those who fail to learn from the past doom themselves to repeat it. It's partly fate. It's partly inability. It's partly unwillingness to learn. Refusal to learn? Motivated refusal to learn? it becomes clear that the writing of Genesis was done in part to explain how we came to be and why humans have so many differences. Christians will continue to look to it as at least part of the answer to life's most pressing questions. But scientists are more than ready to declare the Christian work as another instance of mythology. As such, it belongs among the Vikings' belief that we originated from a mystical cow-licking a salt block, along with the Egyptian frog-headed gods which created their own version of Adam and Eve, named Haq and Haqqet. On the other hand, a metaphorical interpretation of the book of Genesis allows us to think that it was God that set evolution in motion, predetermining that it would be us his chosen sons and daughters who would hit the evolutionary jackpot. But even if we are purely the result of a series of random chances of evolution, humanity has still managed to accomplish magnificent things, even if some of them are unspeakable crimes that perhaps began with a genocidal war against the Neanderthals. Evolution gave us the chance to rise to the top of the food chain, The maintenance of our dominance over all things, both positive and negative, only came about because of the invention of civilization, a uniquely human concept. We will examine the formation of civilization in our next episode. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry@gmail.com. gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.